Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. journey over this worship series on the history of Methodism, and oftentimes the history of Methodism has these bright, shining moments, these opportunities to celebrate how we came into existence and who we have been throughout the journey of getting us to here. But today is a difficult day. Today is a place in our journey when we see that we too made mistakes, not just mistakes, but we too have been guilty of institutionalized sin. So as we've been going through the historical part of our book of discipline, I have read to you occasionally the first, uh, the first sentence of each section because, quite frankly, it amuses me how we are so honest sometimes. For instance, when I read to you that in the beginnings in America, the first section begins with these words, Methodism in America began without authorization, which still amuses me that we could continue to be one of the second largest Protestant denominations in the world when nobody wanted us to exist anyway. That amuses me to no end. It's like God had a purpose that we could never have figured out. But this week, we begin in 1844 with division in America. Now, those of you who know your United States history, you know that in 1844, we are moving toward the Civil War. We are getting ready to call the question on slavery in this country. This section begins with these words. John Wesley had been an ardent opponent to slavery. So the preface is that John Wesley, a paragon of Methodism, one of the key theologians to articulate our unique articulation of grace, was ardently opposed to the institution of slavery. And in 1789... The American Methodist Church ratified its general rules, and in that ratified rules included a stipulation that Methodists were not to participate in slavery. You were not to own slaves, you were not to buy or sell them, you couldn't be part of the economic trade of slaves, and above all, you were meant to be in protest against slavery. It was supposed to be a statement that we don't believe that slavery is the work of God. But I just read to you a text that makes it sound like slavery can be for the glory of God. And that is the struggle. What do we do with passages like this in 1 Peter that dare to make it sound like God wants us to enslave one another? How do we reconcile that? And the Methodist church that was beginning to really increase in size here in the United States was going to have to ask that question and wrestle with the answer. The general rule was forbidding participation in slavery, but it had not been part of the English Methodist Church because slavery was handled very differently. But because slavery was so much a part of the American states at this time, they felt that they needed to address it specifically. However, it won't surprise you that in those areas of the United States where slavery was legal, they ignored the rule. They didn't prosecute it, they didn't talk about it, and they certainly didn't uphold it. 
And so as membership continued to grow, it started to span regions, classes, and races. The slavery question continues to be asked. It continues to be a part of the dialogue that is happening, not just at the local church level, but all throughout the hierarchy of the church. It will be the ultimate split for the Methodist Episcopal Church, and it will separate the northern and the southern churches just as the issue of the legalism of slavery will separate the northern and the southern states. So at the 1844 General Conference, it was a clash of the pro-slavery and the anti-slavery factions. And they argued how slavery affected our understanding of the episcopacy and race. And as they did this, they had the most serious conflict, the igniter of the final split was in the consecration of a bishop by the name of James O. Andrew. James O. Andrew had acquired slaves through marriage. He had not purchased them. He didn't come from a slave-owning family. However, his spouse did. And when he was married, along with his spouse's possessions came the possession of slaves. And the anti-slavery faction looked at this and said, he is violating one of our general rules. He is violating that we are not to own or participate in slavery. Therefore, he cannot possibly be our Episcopal leader. And what was finally decided was, in an effort to kind of mitigate the anger from both sides, was that they, they consecrated and then suspended him until he would rid himself of his slaves, until he would let them go or could let them go. It wasn't enough. And this continues, and it's the same discussion happening in political discourse in our country, so that ultimately the question is, are we for slavery or not? And much to my ever-loving heartbreak, the churches in the South said, we are. And so they would split from the Northern Church and they would lay the groundwork for the formation of the Methodist Episcopal Church South. They developed what is called the Plan of Separation at that same general conference in 1844, and it was the, the ecclesiastical groundwork for the separation of the South, Southern slave-endorsing churches. So delegates from the Southern states, they met up in Louisville, Kentucky in May of 1845 to organize their new church, to vision and to dream and to plan. And they have their first general conference the following year in Petersburg, Virginia. A church that came into existence because it wanted to uphold the slavery of human beings met in our commonwealth. And there, they engaged in things that you might expect from a Methodist denomination. They created their own discipline. They adopted a hymn book. And they continued to practice the inclusion of those who were slaveholders and those who were involved in the slave trade. And it wouldn't stop there. This would continue all the way up through and after the Civil War in this country. And what we find is that the Civil War, much like any schism in a church, ends up pitting family against family. By this time, families are not just all located in one place. Some of them have transgressed the Mason-Dixon line, and so there are literally families that are fighting each other. They are fighting each other in war, and they are fighting each other in the church. 
and the Civil War will devastate the Methodist Episcopal Church South. Most of the fighting will be done in the Southern Territory, and so they will lose their buildings, they will lose their ground to battle and to pillaging. Many of the clergy and the laity will die in the midst of the Civil War. It will completely disrupt and stop all of their missional and ministerial evangelism. Their publishing that they were engaging in will stop, and they will lose critical income that they need in order to function, much less serve Jesus Christ. And you might think that this issue simply resolves itself at the conclusion of the Civil War, but it does not. What you end up finding is that they still cling to this. Even after the issue of slavery is decided, they will cling to their identity as the Methodist Episcopal Church South. Now, every church I have ever been a member of and every church that I have served in the Virginia Annual Conference traces itself back to the Methodist Episcopal Church South, including this one. About a month or so ago, I shared with you how in a chapel, I was showing the children what communion looked like. And I, I brought one of our chalices and one of our plates out and showed them what that was because they see it all the time in this window up here and they wanted to know what it meant. And so I was talking to them about it. And then I tried to do the right thing, which was go and clean those same things so that the next time we serve communion, it wouldn't have sticky preschool fingers all over it. And as I was standing there in our church kitchen that has hosted countless good people cooking food and feeding God's lambs, I recognized the lettering on that plate. The lettering on that plate was an abbreviation for Crozet Methodist Episcopal Church South. And it struck me two things. One, these plates are over 150 years old. They are plates that have been part of the communion and sacramental life of this congregation for well over a century. But the other thing that struck me is that these are plates that commemorate the existence of a denomination that chose slavery. And I stood there for a minute, and I looked at these plates, and I honestly didn't know what to do. They are not my plates. They belong to this church. They are yours. But I recognize that even now, there are people in our congregation who are part of our family of faith that are receiving a taste of God's grace off a plate that their ancestors would not have been allowed to take from. And we, we try to reframe it, right? We try to reframe it. There was a time at my last church where I found myself in a conversation as the Virginian. I mean, I know I'm from Northern Virginia, but it still counts. As the Virginian, I was having a conversation with uh, another person in the church who was from South Carolina and one who was from Ohio. And the one from Ohio said, I don't understand Virginians. I don't get it. My kids are over here now and they're, they're learning history and they're not teaching our kids that the Civil War is about slavery. To which Virginia and South Carolina went, oh, it's not. Virginia pipes up and says, it was about states' rights. And South Carolina goes, oh, no, 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 no. It was the war of northern aggression. And Ohio went, are you kidding me? 
What do you think the right was that you were fighting for? And for the first time, Virginia went, I'm a moron. Literally, what is coming out of my mouth is asinine. What am I saying? We weren't fighting for the right to set our own taxes. We weren't fighting for the right to determine our boundaries geographically. We weren't fighting for our own right to decide if we're going to stay a commonwealth or actually become a state. We were fighting for the right to choose to subjugate another human being to our economic advantage. That's what we were fighting for. And slavery doesn't stop there. Over time, because it was a sin, it continues to breed evil. It continues to become a system where people think it's no, no longer okay just to have them work for us. But we will degrade them. We will make sure that we can continue to subjugate them by telling people that they aren't human like the rest of us. They're a subspecies. We will raise generations to think that they should automatically be afraid when they see someone whose skin is darker than their own. And we have a church that is based in that. And you might think, well, that's all in the past. That's not where we are now. That's the past. But it won't stay the past if we don't talk about it. It will become our present and our future. And if you don't think race is still a problem, we just celebrated yet another anniversary of August 12th, 2017. And it still makes my blood run cold and then boil to think that people came here to the community in which we live and serve and love to declare openly that racism is okay. You have a legal right to be a racist. You do. You have that legal right. You also have a legal right to be a blithering idiot. That is your right. But you are not going to legislate that. And you are not going to make it a part of the life of the church. It is not okay. And we have to deal with the fact that I just read to you First Peter. First Peter is telling us that it's okay that slaves should accept the authority of their masters with all deference. Not just those who are kind and gentle masters because they're in abundance, but those who are harsh. I like the political nature of the word. Not cruel, not unjust, not sinful, not evil. Harsh. This is not God. Now, I can't just point to another scripture that goes, 1 Peter 2, uh, y'all need to ignore that. I can't point to you that scripture. But I can point you repeatedly to other parts of the Bible. Other parts of the Bible that said that God is a liberating God. That God saw God's people enslaved, in bondage, in Egypt for 400 years and said enough and set them free. And didn't just set them free walked with them to a place where they didn't have to be slaves. That's what God is, a liberating God. And then God came to liberate every single one of us from our sin. This idea that your suffering brings glory to God is completely garbage. 
God came to us that we should not have to suffer, not our sin, or that other people shouldn't have to suffer because of our sin. That's the entire point of the cross, that Jesus suffered that we would not, that Jesus suffered so that we would have the power to stop sinning, so that we would stop making other people suffer for our sin. We are not called to perpetuate sin and suffering. We are called to recognize that this power has been broken and testify that we will not continue to be part of systems and institutions that want to make suffering normal. What you are getting here in 1 Peter 18 is Hellenistic moralism. Now, humanity seeps into the Bible. It's there. I mean, you can have conversations with people all day long about parts of the Bible that contradict itself or parts of the Bible that seem to be completely erroneous. There are parts of the Bible that are also negative stories. They are there so that you go, that sounds really bad. Let's not ever do that again. There are those stories. Otherwise, how many of you think, oh, you know, Abraham did it. It's probably a good idea to tell everybody that my spouse is my sibling. Wrong. Not a good idea. Oh, it's probably a good idea that when King David sins and commits adultery, the way to fix that is to have the person who you commit adultery with have their spouse murdered. That'll fix everything. Wrong. That's obviously wrong. We know that. And people will want to point at this and go, it's in the Bible. Oh, yeah, it's in the Bible. But not everything in the Bible is there so that we will replicate it. I often have discussions with people, not in the church, it's usually not in the church, that want to point out to me that the Bible endorses polygamy. It's never a man that wants to, I mean, it's never a woman that wants to have this argument with me, ladies. Never. No woman's like, you know, the Bible endorses polygamy and we should fix this right now. We should all just take on somebody else's husband. I don't see that happening. But I do get men occasionally who will say to me, you know, the Bible uh, has polygamy in it. And I'm like, yeah, the Bible does. There's polygamy in the Bible. Absolutely. Uh, name me one person for whom that works well. Just one. I'll wait. Because it doesn't. It's a bad idea. Ask Abraham. Ask Jacob. Ask them. How did that work when you took more than one wife? How'd that go for you? It's so bad that by the time you get to King David and King Solomon, the entire country is paying for their hundreds of wives. It's a bad idea. But how many of us, when God said, please stop sinning, went, oh, yeah, got it, never doing that again. We had to learn the hard way. And the Bible is full of learning the hard way. But when you have people that want to take fundamentalism and say, every word in here is true, every word in here is true, and every word should be followed to the letter, you get people who feel justified in their hatred, in their subjugation of another person, people who feel justified in saying to somebody, you are less than me. And there's something about sin, even for Christians, that wants to say, well, I'm not the worst. Right? Yeah, I gossip, but, you know, I never murdered anybody. Doesn't matter. It's still a sin. And I bet you that more people are hurt by gossip than murder. So you have to look at what we're saying and what we're doing and what the meaning is. 
It gets so bad, the, the distortion and the sickness in the Methodist Episcopal Church South, that at one point they kick all the African Americans out. What are we doing? How can this be us? Is this who we are? Is this who we want to be? Is this who God is calling us to be? No. I don't believe anybody here believes that. But we still live in a world where the question of equality and race and worthiness are very much on the front page. We have not come that far in certain instances. I thought I was out of my mind as I was watching from Pennsylvania on August 12th and seeing Nazis marching in Charlottesville. Never in my life did I think that would happen. I've seen all kinds of crazy marching in D.C. because I grew up in Northern Virginia. I've seen people march in all kinds of weird things and do weird things and wear weird, th weird things, but I had never thought that the day would come when I would see people wearing a swastika marching in Charlottesville. And I'm thinking, the world has gone insane. And I'm up here, and the world has gone insane. What is happening? And maybe for the first time in my life, I had a taste, a glimpse, of what the Methodist Episcopal Church was thinking when it found itself on the holy floor of holy conferencing, listening to people go, slavery is okay. It's okay. It'll be fine. They're not really people. We cannot be those people. We cannot. That is not why Christ has come and forgave us and has loved us and is sanctifying us. That's not why. God loved us so much that God repeatedly battled on behalf of Israel as God the Father. Repeatedly took that on God's self so that the people would not have to suffer and die. Then repeatedly, Christ comes to us, God the Son, and suffers and dies that we would not have to. And then if it weren't enough, on Pentecost, God the Holy Spirit comes to us to remind us internally that God has borne all the sin and the suffering, and that we don't have to continue to do this. There is another way. There is a holier way. And so when I look back on this period of time, I am ashamed. I am ashamed that this is our legacy. I am ashamed that I myself have members in my family who are virulent racists. I am ashamed because that should not be. My grandmother grew up in Atlanta. In Atlanta, they actually raised her to fear black men. Irrational fear of black men. Because they're dark? Darker than you? We have to hear these horribly embarrassing, tragic, sinful things. Because if we don't, this won't just be our past. It will happen again. And maybe we won't have slavery in the same way. Maybe it won't be a racial slavery for economic purposes. 
But any time the church allows through its agreement, its apathy, or its silence to allow a group of people to be subjugated and hated, we are back at that very first general conference, choosing sin. And we can't do that. We can't be those people. God hasn't multiplied our numbers and given us the gifts that we have in the United Methodist Church in order to continue to be a part of anything that is bringing suffering. We were called to share what we have been given, liberation and love. And now I've discovered the longer I live my life that sometimes you don't know what you're going to do. And sometimes you have to make a decision on the fly. It would be great if anybody that was going to ask me a really hard question gave me like 24 hours notice. That would be fantastic. I could pray. I could search the scriptures. I could read a little book of discipline. But that's not how life goes. Things happen, and then you have to respond. And what are you going to do? And sometimes you find yourself, have you ever had that, where you almost feel incapacitated because you don't want to do the wrong thing because you are trying to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, but you don't know what to do? When in doubt, love. I can't imagine standing before the resurrected, triumphant Christ on the throne on the day of judgment and resurrection and Jesus going, you know, that was a fail. Yes, Lord, it was. But I was trying to love. And having Jesus say, why would you pick love? can't picture Jesus saying that. I can picture Jesus saying, sometimes even love is going to lead you to a place that you don't want to be. Sometimes love is going to create situations where you may not feel that you've done the right thing. But I don't think we regret love. I don't think God ever regrets loving us. We have to choose love. And sometimes love is saying to the world, you are wrong about these people. Sometimes love is saying to institutions and systems, you cannot treat people like this. Sometimes love is saying, you are a being of sacred worth. You are beloved. You are as equal to me as God has created us to be. And that is when we discover that not only have we learned from our division, but we have grown. We have grown beyond that. But no growth will be permanent if we don't learn to prune the parts of us that had a propensity to sin, that had a desire to go back there. Susan read a psalm today that was all about this vine, that God had planted this vine. And Jesus will take up this imagery and use it in his preaching and his teaching. The idea that I am the vine and you are the branches. But even the branches have to make sure that every piece, every leaf, every bud of a flower that will become fruit is intentionally cared for, nurtured and brought into existence. Because if we don't, we will become like a wild weed. And the sad thing is, 
it's not the vine killing the vine. It's often that the vine starts strangling others. Other plants, other shrubs, other trees. We were not meant to cause suffering. We were not even meant to suffer. We have been saved from both. May we, as the people who now are Methodists, write a history for ourselves that openly declares that we recognize from where we have come, but we pledge before God and one another that we will never go back to that place. We will never again choose institutionalized sin so that it can snowball and downward spiral into hatred and violence. Instead, we will be a people who choose to be known and to live out our grace. May it be so. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.